It's like mm-hmm. the those footprints in the sand. Mm-hmm. When you needed me most, I carried you. I've never done anything wrong to you in my life. Yeah. I'm Jesus Christ. Do you remember that time that the Son of God carried you across a beach? It was extremely yeah. romantic. Yeah, that's not just like a Wednesday. <laughs> Journals, a stream of consciousness news podcast with Stephen Jackson and Brandon R. Reynolds. Stephen, I'm extremely excited about today's show. Me too. Mm-hmm. A couple of shows ago, we had a friend of mine on as our guest journo. Today, we're going to meet one of your friends. Yeah. As a, guest, a guest journo. Yeah. Very old friend. We've been buddies since the fourth grade. Who is he? What do we need to know about him? So uh, his name's Ronald Weaver. He is a filmmaker, documentarian who lives in New York City. And he has been following the protest movement that emerged uh, in the wake of the George Floyd killing very closely. He's been, all told, he's been to over 200 rallies right there on the ground, filming everything, in many cases, live streaming it onto his Instagram account. He is actually putting together a documentary based on his experience at all these rallies. So we're lucky enough to have him speaking to us from his apartment in New York City. What we're really going to be doing is getting into the work that he's been doing on the ground and hear about his experience covering this very unique moment in our nation's history. Yeah, we get into all kinds of stuff with Ron, Stephen. We talk about the rise of militias. We talk about journalism and journalism ethics. We talk about all the different places he's gone and the kind of evolution of these social movements in the last couple of years. Uh, It's a big batch of stuff. So, uh, Ronald, uh, Ron, welcome to the show. Hello, Ron. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, super excited to talk about these things because I, I live this life. So, yeah, I like, to, I like the format. Let's do it. First of all, give us a little bit of background about what you've been doing for the past two years. Right. So, you know, the independent journalist title, the documentarian title, it's relatively new. You know, I, I kind of... Uh, got my camera skills together, was a photographer, was a videographer, maybe graduated to the cinematographer or filmmaker title over the last 10 years or so. And in the pandemic, for the first time, I was kind of in a situation where I was able to cover current events. So living in New York City, obviously being the epicenter of the pandemic um, for at least a few weeks, um, our lockdown situation presented like an amazing opportunity to capture photos of an empty city. Um, And so I just got on my bike. I hit every street from 100th down in Manhattan, just canvassing the city. um, Like I said, in a situation that felt compelling, felt like an opportunity that I couldn't miss up on. And then Uh, Related to that situation was the George Floyd murder and subsequent protests. And so when protesting started in Brooklyn on May 29th, I immediately ran out there with that same sort of energy. This is happening in my city. I have the opportunity to capture and document it. And then there was extra layers of this is a movement for justice for black people in America which includes me. So this is essentially my fight. So it was all of these factors that came together that just made it 
like essential for me to go out and capture. And then basically as the months went by, I kept doing it. I kept doing it. I started going to the Trump side to try to figure out the divide in America. Next thing you know, I'm on the footsteps of the Capitol building in DC on January 6th with my big ass camera and a cowboy hat. And, you know, here we are today talking two days after I got back from Ottawa, Canada, in a protest situation that I had only kind of realized three or four days before going. I'm in Mexico on a job and I'm reading reports of this protest that's happening in Canada. And I feel, again, compelled to go capture it, not because I'm Canadian or because the movement necessarily benefits or hurts me. It's just I've become addicted to this sort of life. And I am willing to spend my own money and drive 15 hours through a blizzard to go capture this protest that I had just heard about a week ago. So you started with Black Lives Matter and you put out a, well, I guess kind of a sizzle reel. You, you have, it's a 19 minute taste of a documentary. Clearly you've got years of footage that shot with you and your big ass camera. It's interesting to see just in the process of this 19 minutes, how you started in one place and the story very physically, literally, and sort of conceptually took you in a whole other direction. First, it's sort of, you know, there's this reasonable, seems like a nice Jewish kid with a yarmulke saying, here's why I voted for Trump. And then by the end of it, it, you know, it's paramilitaries in masks and just this sort of terrifying progression that you track over two years it's really kind of a, a fascinating thing, but talk about that idea of being captured by the story and sort of what you had in mind kind of from moment to moment and whether you ever had any sort of real sense of like, I know what I'm going to put together or if it was just evolving too quickly. Yeah, I mean, the journey was completely spontaneous. When I set out the first day, it was more about let's take some photos, let's capture some video. I want to be able to document this as far as like a, a feature documentary or even a short documentary, that was way beyond the scope of what I had originally kind of, uh, what, what originally had, had gotten me out there. And then as the protest scene, you know, had this longevity that almost nobody that I know could have predicted, it just seemed like something that I needed to do. It, it seemed like an opportunity um, for me as this aspiring documentary filmmaker that had tried to shoot documentaries in the past, but for whatever reason, be it budget constraints or a lack of knowledge in the documentary filmmaking space or, you know, several other reasons, I just, I failed time and time again. I think I tried three or four documentaries, none of which got very far, not even to a sizzle reel, really, just basically the initial stages of shooting. So combining my passion for justice, you know, for black people in this country with this passion to want to be a documentary filmmaker, I knew that this opportunity more than any other that would present itself to me was the best, the biggest. I knew that if if I had a chance of being a documentary filmmaker, it would be telling this story. Yeah, definitely. And many people, thousands of your followers uh, attract the the progression of this story that you were covering throughout the height, the absolute throes of the pandemic right. up until, you know, just the other day. I, I mean, how much were you traveling? I want to get a sense of how deep you were in this shit. BLM 
pre-election Trump, post-election Trump stopped the steal, um, some things that I did in 2021. And if you throw things like Ottawa in the mix, plus the other things I did, I think I'm near 200 events. Wow. Unbelievable. So, I mean, you are on the front lines of these events. I remember following live streams that you would do, especially in Louisville, where you were running from sort of safe area to safe area after curfews. You were making friends with the BLM protesters. You were uh, at one point, I believe you were hunkered down in a church while you were kind of uh, skirting around uh, police officers enforcing these curfew laws. I mean, just doing the damn thing. What did you learn about America? in this in this process, both about the right and about the left? Well, I, I want to start this off by talking a little bit about the progression of, of what I was doing, because I think it would be unfair to kind of put it into this documentary filmmaking box, because there was an element of journalism, of, of news reporting. I, I had this IG Live kind of hybrid documentary filmmaker way of going about these things, and I'd, I'd keep my audience updated you know generally in documentary filmmaking nobody knows what you're shooting because you're not sharing it but for me it was important to keep the audience in because i was reporting live man on the ground boots on the ground style so yeah (laughs) i've become worried about the future of this country with a lot of the journeys that i went on um like i said I, i started out in a passionate place where I was optimistic about the chances of of real tangible change through this Black Lives Matter movement that was sparked by George Floyd's murder. And that kind of morphed to a, wow, there's a lot of division in this country, which then took another step towards this division has potential volatile consequences after going to Louisville. Um, And then once I went to the Trump side, I realized these ideological differences that we have are not getting any better. You know, I realized that the take that many of us on the left take, which is possibly ignore or shun or put down the other side because we believe some of their ideology is, is outrageous or racist or stooped in this or or will lead to that might not be the answer. You know, I realized that a lot of these these people on the right maybe feel disenfranchised um, and that, you know, belittling them only strengthens their resolve. And so a lot of the, the things that I hypothesized as far as, you know, a path forward for this country ended up being way off from from what I now believe are some keys or some essential steps that we need to take as a nation to kind of take us off this path of destruction. I recently read a book that just came out a couple of weeks ago, um, how civil wars start and, and how to avoid them. I, I might be misquoting that. And like pure numbers, like pure data in terms of, you know, the relationship or, or the divide between a democracy and an autocracy, there's like a way of calculating where a country is on this scale. And studying all civil wars over the past 100, 150 years, there's a certain level at which countries are very likely to spill into these very, very dangerous areas. And and our country started off at the top, you know, a 10 or 11 rating, the highest rating all the way to the right on the democracy scale. 
And we're starting to inch back towards the middle, which is the sweet spot for actual civil war and like sustained conflict. What are some of the things that they said they wanted on the right? I mean, is the idea of armed revolution something that some of these people want, even the ones with guns, or is it more subtle than that? As far as militias are concerned, I think for the most part, they consider armed revolution the last straw. Like they don't necessarily want to do it. It's something that they have to do in order to save their country. So I realize that you really have to put yourself in their shoes to understand how they justify that sort of action. And it only was made possible with the big lie. Because if you are a Trump supporter and you believe that you as a voter has been disenfranchised through a fraudulent election, it's your duty as a patriot to fight back and to uphold the Constitution and to save your country. So, you know, and and I don't know what came first, the chicken or the egg, like they were waiting for a situation like this or they were waiting for something to happen where they could rescue the country. But essentially, you know, these groups, especially the militant armed groups, really started to surface when Obama was elected. I mean, they went from 40 or 50 militia groups to to 400 plus within a three to five year time span once Obama got elected. And so why did they do that? Well, they'll tell you that they did that because they felt like communism and socialism was was coming in and and they needed to organize and to arm themselves in case the government got too tyrannical um whether or not that has something to do with him being black i mean i i know what my opinion is and then i think that the non-militia right you know the trump fanatic or even the trump voter You've seen the statistics. I mean, I think 60 percent or more of Republicans believe that this election, this past election was fraudulent. And that is like the crux of their justification for storming the Capitol building or preparing for a civil war. I envisioned a second, you know, civil war as a left versus right thing. But I think that's a misconception and that civil wars uh, in this day and age are much different. And a civil war also means just proxy battles or just all out domestic terrorism that's constant from one side. And it doesn't have to be a battle between citizens. It can be one side versus the government, which I think is a much more likely outcome. A lot of what you're talking about here was encapsulated in a particular event that seems like something of a turning point for you. And that was the Louisville protest. It's my understanding that at that protest, the the weaponry was a pretty big theme in louisville that day there were your classic american militia classics but then and correct me if i'm wrong in louisville there were also people on the left who were also equally arming themselves what made louisville different it was a turning point for me personally because hey i'm from california i live in new york my experience with guns is limited especially when it's concerned with people bringing guns out on the street in broad daylight. And in this case, for protest purposes, like I've never seen that before. In all the events I had been to, I hadn't seen it one gun, let alone hundreds of guns, let alone assault rifles and handguns combos with a knife on the side. 
So Breonna Taylor was killed by police uh, in March of 2020. Um, it was a no-knock warrant, and there's a little bit of uproar, but there's it's not national news per se. It, it kind of hit the headlines and then kind of died down. Only after George Floyd's death did Breonna Taylor's story really get elevated. So when I went to Louisville, this was months after she had been killed, and this was in response to the lack of action by the attorney general of Kentucky who hadn't made a decision to indict the police officers that killed her. So this protest movement of Louisvillians was centered around downtown. They were frustrated. There was no action. There's no grand jury. There's no charges. And the leader of the not fucking around coalition which is an all black militia, basically made a statement that said, if you, Attorney General of Kentucky, don't make a decision regarding the fate of these officers, we're going to burn the city down. And then he later clarified that burn the city down was a metaphorical kind of, <laughs> uh, you know, not literally burning the city down, but going there and fucking calling out names, shutting the Kentucky Derby down like making it difficult for the city to make the money that they're accustomed to making. And so in response to that threat, the right-wing militias said, you're not burning Louisville down. We'll meet you there and see what's up. So it was this kind of inevitable clash between this right-wing militia and this black nationalist militia, which they don't really claim political affiliation, but I'd like to say they're left-leaning just really strong on the second amendment. Yeah. <laughs> but, in, but in addition to that, there were, there were freelance gun toters. There were BLM or like local Louisville protesters that were armed to the teeth. Like they had the assault rifles, they had the handguns. Wow. You had these, these three groups of people and then throw in a few like, like actual free agents where they're not really aligned with the protesters. They're not aligned with the far right and they're not aligned with NFAC. They were just there and brought their guns because they heard there was going to be other people with guns. They wanted to show up. And just enthusiasts. Yeah. They heard there was a gun party. They heard there was a gun party. <laughs> and they're like, I'm not going to miss this shit. Let me clean my barrel and show up. Yeah. And, you know, some of the protesters are very far left leaning. So it was, it was interesting for me, especially knowing that, you know, predominantly militias these days in America are far right. So to see a woman with a skirt and an assault rifle and a three arrow Antifa shirt, that blew my mind. I had never seen anything like that. How does that inform your uh, vision of what you think this Civil War 2.0 decentralized Civil War, however you want to call it, would look like? Like, why did that particular event make you start thinking a little differently the first time i had even considered warfare on a large scale was after that first louisville situation no question about it and why because i saw hundreds of assault rifles in broad daylight wielded by people that seemingly were willing to go to war or go to battle i should say over this situation you know this wasn't a presidential election or you know disenfranchised voters this was like a court case so you know this was way before 
the the stakes were that high. Like I said, this was a localized issue where it brought out three to 500 people that were armed and ready to go. You've seen these events where like there's a bunch of armed people. There's a lot of tension, a lot of anger, a lot of shoving. You could expect that there would be dead bodies. And it hasn't happened. Why didn't it pop off? Like why was some semblance of peace kept? Again, like my experience with guns is limited. So if you were to tell me, you know, 200 people on one side and 300 people on on another side, all with guns, wouldn't go to battle. I thought that was impossible. But the reality is like when you have a gun and you're around a bunch of other people with guns and a lot of those people have guns, you're really hesitant to pull the trigger because you know how high the stakes are. And I think that everybody that wields uh, an assault rifle on the street with hundreds of other people around with guns understands that. And so believe it or not, like people were using discretion pretty well. Like I, I was, I was shocked at how much discretion was like, was used in the proper way. And, but that doesn't exclude the possibility of someone just coming in there that wants to see shit go down, just firing off a couple rounds because the reaction to any bullets being fired is more bullets being fired. So I, I think it was a razor's edge. And I think even with this new understanding of how people treat guns pretty well, considering, I think that we escaped that day. It kind of is a microcosm of mutually assured destruction, right? The idea that both sides build up these nuclear weapons. And if somebody launches one, everything's going to go nuts. You're all screwed. And so in that case, the thing you need to worry about is the the rogue agent, right? Yeah. But that also means there's sort of a hurdle to get over, right? Which is we think of civil war or kind of most wars where it's like dudes on this side, dudes on this side. It will most likely still be dudes um, shooting at each other. But in this case, it's more about uh, opportunism, right? Like, so it could be something that would look more like a terrorist attack on a place. I mean, you can see, you can imagine a left-wing armed militia or a right-winged armed militia like having garrisons. Imagine that with guns. Or Louisiana, you know, the three percenters like, you know, stage a cordon. Or the autonomous zone in Seattle. Or like what's happening with truck drivers in Canada. That idea of like, we're going to just claim territory oh, yeah. and wait for the National Guard or the police or whatever to come in and break it up or yeah. or not to. Let's not forget about the Michigan Capitol building storming, oh, yeah. you know, back yeah. in the early COVID days. January 6th, in other words, wasn't that far fetched even before it happened like this. Yeah. The writing was on the wall. We just chose to ignore it. I mean, those guys yeah. stormed the Michigan Capitol building with arms and you know, you raise the anger level a couple notches, which, you know, was evident on January 6th, but that anger hasn't subsided. You take that anger and you turn January 6th into just a, a taking over of the building with arms. A lot of yeah. people didn't bring guns to D.C. because of how harsh the laws are. But in an Oregon or a Pennsylvania or a Michigan or a Kentucky, this is a different story. Totally. So. Um, what's the media missing in all this story? Well, I, I think just the traditional way that media is set up and how they profit makes it difficult for them to just be very objective. When you're reliant on clicks or on views, you tend to tell the news in a certain way. And when you know your base, you know what they want to hear. And I've always had this desire to kind of look at both sides of the media. And when you look at 
right-wing media and left-wing media, you can see how different they are. You can see what stories one side plays and what stories other sides just don't touch with a 10-foot pole. And so, you know, I think one advantage I had was I had no agenda. Well, early on, you know, in the BLM movement, I did have an agenda as a black guy, as a person that wanted to see this protest movement succeed, I had incentive to not show everything, right? I, I, I had incentive to make it look better than it was, if possible. Not that I did, but I'm saying those kind of things were playing in my mind. But, you know, as this has gone further, especially as it's gone past this BLM movement, I, I want to tell like the unedited, non-curated truth because I don't make any money off of this. Like I'm telling a story of what I'm experiencing. And yeah, there is incentive to maybe twist this and twist that, but like, I just haven't fallen down that hole. And I just think media with, like I said, their quotas makes it very difficult for them to tell the story and showing everything and trying to be objective and trying to not spin things is critical. And it's so hard for news organizations and media outlets to do that. Yeah, you wanted to really get into the mind of some of these super indoctrinated Trump supporters. You felt that you were not going to be able to access some of their more uh, raw emotions and feelings if they saw you as a black man from the left. So you decided to kind of do something a bit unorthodox. Take us through that. Yeah. And, I, and I, I'm glad that you added the left part because it was more about the politics than the color of my skin as far as yep. not being able to get truth in what I was asking them. Oftentimes when it's not about race, I want to make it clear that it's not because I think you lose steam when the card is played at certain times. But anyway, that's, that's neither here nor there. And this also goes back to my clarification over what I am, right? The ethics of what I'm doing are different as a documentary filmmaker versus a reporter or a journalist, you know? As a journalist, that you're getting into some a slippery slope when you're not being forthcoming with who you are, who you represent, uh, what your opinions are. But as a documentary filmmaker, that's part of my documentary. I'm not, I'm not bending any rules. I just know that the right and also the left, let's be clear, has this major distrust of media in general. And so as soon as you ask a question with a camera on, they are going to be paranoid that you're either going to take them out of context, that you're going to try to use what they say to prove them wrong or to prove their ideology or narrative wrong. So in order to kind of like subvert that, or at least to like get around that, I presented myself as someone that's like-minded. And I came to find that if you're black and you're a conservative or a Trump supporter, you are embraced amongst the, the Trump crowd. I think that there are a lot of Trump supporters that are relieved when they come across a person of color that's a Trump supporter. Whether they are racist or not, it cements their belief that solely being a Trump supporter does not make you a racist, right? And this is part of what you'll have to tune into my documentary to see. <laughs> but I, uh, after going to that side, I come to realize that I think a majority of Trump supporters are decent, nice people, right? I've come to the conclusion that a lot of them have been duped. 
I feel like a lot of them have been duped to oftentimes perpetuate white supremacy unintentionally, which is very hard to get your head around. And it's very hard for me at this point to condemn people that perpetuate white supremacy unintentionally. Is that their fault? I don't know. I, I think it goes back to education. I think it, it, it's not surprising that there's this whole fight against critical race theory, because that basically is teaching our kids of this nation the foundational white supremacy in our country. Mm. So it's like at some point there's cognitive dissonance. It's like people don't want to learn that actually what they're representing is racist because they're not racist. They they have black friends. They look, there's a black Trump supporter. How can I be racist? Yeah. How is Trump a racist if black people are supporting him? Does that make that problematic then if they think here's a guy who supports the cause, but it's not? Uh, I mean, it's also to be clear, describe how you would dress. You weren't going in there just with like a Trump bumper sticker on your car. <laughs> you were going a little bit deeper than that. There were stages, right? OK, so the first Trump rally I went to, I wore a red shirt. And then when I was walking into the rally, I got a Trump 2020 pin and just stuck that you know, above my chest. So when you put that pin on, how'd you feel? I mean, I felt weird. It felt weird. Like I, you know, I, I'm at a Trump rally, you know? This is the thing that I watched in 2015 and like cringed, but also laughed because I mean, before I realized that Donald Trump had a chance to win the presidency, he was entertaining me. Like I was laughing, but you know, as time went on and it got more serious, obviously it was frightening. Yeah. As I was there longer, it only cemented the fact that I needed some kind of cover because the first question when you ask somebody if they want to do an interview is, who do you work for? What media outlet are you for? What is this for? So I knew the paranoia was there. This, this was something that I brainstormed. And then in practice, it just happened over and over and over again. The most extensive I got was a Trump beanie and that pin. It never was more than that. I'm lying, actually. In Omaha, Nebraska, I bought a how to how to clean your AR-15 shirt. <laughs> I had that Trump beanie and pin. So that was as deep as I got. But I realized that at some point, it's too obvious to have a MAGA beanie and smile and a Trump pin. So I started to take the MAGA stuff off. And you know what the perfect recipe for this subtle, and I don't want to call it a disguise. It was just, at that point, it was just making people feel more comfortable with me. It was just simply a cowboy hat, just a cowboy hat. That's it. Mm -hmm. And did you feel like that was ethically compromised in any way to go in and sort of dress as them and present yourself even implicitly as somebody who supports yeah. their cause? Because if, if for nothing else, the fact that like they'll walk away and be like, I've got a black friend now who right, thinks like right. I do. No, I hear you. Again, I'm not a journalist. I mean, you guys can call yeah. me that. Other people can call me that. I'm a documentary filmmaker. I think the ethics are different with those two mm -hmm. titles. And I think going into it, knowing that I was going to be objective and that this project ultimately is to try to bring us together and that it required me to put them at ease in order to have a better understanding of where they're coming from, I didn't feel bad about it. And I didn't think I was breaking any rules per se. But again, like, I mean, that's not for me to decide. These, there, there's clear distinctions between what's right and what's wrong. And in the moment, as a documentary filmmaker, knowing that they wouldn't be as transparent with me if I was honest, I felt like 
fudging the truth was okay. And again, like I didn't lie about who I was. I was Ronald Weaver from California, from LA, living in New York. I'd only tell a fib about my political affiliation if it was directly asked. So, I, you know, in other words, I was vague until I was pressed. I would shake my head in agreement when they said something that I categorically disagree with just to keep the interview going. But for the most part, I didn't feel bad about stretching the truth because my intentions were pure. I think there's a very legitimate gray area here especially with intentions and in the name of kind of getting as, as clear a view into a subject as possible. Now, uh, can you tell us where to find you and tell us a little bit about this project if people want to support? So, yeah, you can find me on Instagram at rw2productions. Um, that's kind of where everything starts for me. I, I have a YouTube, I have a Twitter, but no, Instagram is, is the base and everything can be found from there. And as far as documentary, the documentary I've been working on over the last two years, it's moving forward. And I'm hopeful that it'll be out before 2024 election. I don't think there's a realistic chance that this thing will be done before the midterms. But considering the angle that I've taken and what I've learned and, and what the implications are long term, I think it's more important for it to come out in 2024 to make sure we don't forget about where we were at in these last two years and what to specifically avoid uh, in that time frame, so that we don't fall further down this this path of uh, you know proxy decentralized civil war 2.0. Great, all right. Thank you, Ron. We appreciate you uh, coming on the show today. Sure, thanks, Ron. And, and thanks for having me. That sounds great. Yeah, yeah. Cute. All great right, meeting bye. you, Ron. Yeah. Stephen, I mean, you and your friends, man. Accomplished, got- interesting, <laughs> fascinating people. I cast a wide net. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I would characterize uh, your, you and your friends as people who like to get into the middle of the shit. Yeah. Yeah. Ron yeah. is one of them. Great dude. That was a really cool conversation. Absolutely. Part of what makes him a good journos or journo uh, is that he is doing something that is is unique in the sense that there's just not a lot of people who are following this movement as it evolves day by day, week by week, yeah. and so on. And also really interesting that he got into the kind of ethical landmine that is trying to get people to talk to him. You yeah. know? And that to me, as sort of an old school journalist, uh, is both fascinating and, you know, a little bit like a little bit disturbing. Because if you disguise yourself as a Trump supporter, explicitly or otherwise, and go talk to people and misrepresent yourself, that's the sort of thing that once upon a time, and maybe even still, uh, could get you fired from your publication. Mm. So, you know, that idea of you want to be straightforward with the people you're interviewing, you want them to understand who you are, um, can be really tricky. I think there's a few things going on here. I think there's a certain bit of ends justifying the means. I mean, I don't think that he would have been able to illustrate such a clear view of people's true feelings without that disguise because of the situation where the country's at. Like, what we're all trying to do here is bring out the truth of a subject, right? Like, I think that we are, we've never been in this more polarized place, both politically and in terms of distrust of media. And so I think that what Ron was doing was, is A, just super ballsy, and B, uh, I, I think it's okay. I'm not going to lie. And maybe I'm biased in that way. And maybe I'm also 
somewhat wrong, but to me, I think it's it's actually pretty interesting. And maybe I'm like canceling myself from any community of old school journalists for having that opinion, but I don't know. It's how I feel. Yeah, I mean, the reason those ethics tend to be in place is because all you have to do is flip it to the other side. The other side in this case would be Project Veritas run by James O'Keefe, which is a sort of notorious, it's practically a spy agency now, but it's an organization that this guy O'Keefe started entirely to um, essentially spy on media. So he would get people, they would go undercover, they would record people surreptitiously, and he would get, you know, uh, media execs and stuff saying these things, and then you publish them and it'd be very embarrassing. Yeah. Um, but very, very much a Trump supporter. And he justifies all this in the same way. So, you know, that's where it gets tricky. And I think the same idea is I'm not a journalist, he would say. I'm, you know, doing some other kind of thing. Yeah, I think the intention has a lot to do with it, too. Ron's doing his best to tell as balanced of a story of this as possible. So I think that he's, through that process, he did find a great degree of empathy for these people, right? And he said as much in the interview. So, yeah, I don't have as much of a problem about it, but... In the name of good journalism and constant questioning, I actually decided to give Ron a call to follow up about this. Uh, and here's what he said. Steven, what's up, man? Ron, <laughs> uh, I'm doing good, man. Uh, thanks for talking with us the other day. Yeah, absolutely. I really, uh, I really enjoyed it, man. It was great. Right on. Well, so... After we hopped off with you, Brandon and I got to talking a little bit more deeply about this distinction that you were making between being a journalist and a documentary filmmaker. And we kind of um, had a bit of a back and forth about it. And I was like, chef, why don't I just call Ron? So um, tell me a little bit more about how you feel uh, regarding the difference between being a documentary filmmaker and being a journalist, like what, what truly makes the two different in your opinion? Well, for me personally, I think that there's a relatively defined code of ethics for journalism, uh, for being a reporter. And oftentimes those don't necessarily match up with the ethics of a documentarian or a documentary filmmaker. Um, you know, for me, some of my favorite documentaries rely heavy on not necessarily deception, uh, but, you know, maybe omitting the truth or being a little bit less forthcoming and transparent with the subject in order to guarantee transparency from them. Tell me a few examples of, like, uh, of some documentaries where that happened. Um, probably my all-time favorite piece is The Art of Killing, which uh, was made by, I believe, an American that's based in Europe, um, who, you know, wanted to dive deeper into the history of Indonesia um, at a time when there were what, what some would consider genocidal killings um, during the attempt to stop communism from spreading. And so a lot of that was government sanctioned. A lot of it was done by paramilitary organizations. But you know, what the filmmaker did in that piece was basically go down to Indonesia and get very, um, let's say, transparent interviews and filming sessions with some of the people that were involved in some of these killings. Um, and in that process, the intention of the film wasn't really divulged, uh, which allowed the filmmaker to get 
sort of that raw emotion and raw transparency from some of the subjects that may not have been possible otherwise. Yeah. So in terms of what a documentarian is setting out to do, why are the code of ethics a little bit different? What's the difference between a journalist reporting on a story, even if it's done through video, and a documentary filmmaker creating a piece to share with the world? Like, what in your mind really delineates the two? Yeah, to be honest, I mean, I'm really not sure. And I think that many professionals um, would probably kind of take the same sort of stance. I mean, I feel like news and journalism and reporting, those ethics are, are kind of essential and they're, they just have a historical element um, where it's just necessary. I think there's a certain responsibility uh, when it comes to news organizations and journalists to uphold these ethics. And to be honest, I'm not really sure why documentarians should be held to a different standard other than it's just uh, maybe an expression of art. It's an art expression, uh, if you will. Like, I think that when you're making a documentary film, um, it's just different than reporting the news. Just doing a little bit of research, it seems that, you know, some documentary filmmakers do take the sort of journalistic approach and, and follow or adhere to what are considered to some kind of these commandments of responsibility. I, I looked up the Society of Pro Journalists, Professional Journalists, and, you know, they have seek truth and report it, minimize harm, act independently, be accountable and transparent. And some would say that, uh, you know, documentarians should follow those, but others don't you know, hold themselves to that. And there doesn't really seem to be um, a consensus on what's acceptable and what's not. And so being kind of a self-taught documentary filmmaker, I don't have the formal education to know what professors are saying or, or what the consensus is amongst the, you know, professors in this field. So I've kind of taken it upon myself to do as I feel as long as I'm true to myself and knowing what the end goal is. And, and that's, you know, trying to find the truth. Um, if that requires me to not be fully transparent in the beginning, uh, as long as I report the, the path in finding that truth, once I present it to the world, I feel okay with that. And, and if I feel okay with it, knowing that I'm like, just a, a morally just person in general, then I, then I can sleep at night. Right. Yeah, I respect that opinion. I feel like these are questions that will continue to come up. And I think a follow-up question to all that would be, what would you say to one of your interview subjects who took issue with that? I'm totally aware of this widespread mistrust of the media, and that is just a serious roadblock in interviewing people and getting the transparent truth. So I took it upon myself to ensure that my subject was comfortable in order to gain that. And it wasn't malicious. None of what I said influenced their answers in describing their opinions and how they came to those opinions and you know how they feel about the state of the nation and why they love Trump. That didn't affect them. They thought they were speaking to someone that was going to tell the whole truth. I think one of the reasons why people don't trust the media is because they're fearful that they'll be taken out of context, 
that their words will be used against them. So if they believe that I'm going to represent them in the same way that they were delivering this information to me, then they have nothing to worry about. Yeah. There's a sort of letting the ends justify the means mentality at play here. So to what end do you have these people share their unadulterated truth? What is the point of getting these folks to really express themselves in this honest way? I had lost trust in the media, too. I had been out a few days in the early stages of these protests, and I was witnessing things with my own eyes, experiencing the ebbs and flows of this protest movement, and then I'd come home and watch it on the news, and it wouldn't be the same as what I experienced. So I felt some sort of duty in documenting it and making sure that it was not heavily curated. It wasn't intended to push a certain narrative. It was showing what happened, you know. In that process of documenting the BLM movement, I realized that this situation in this country was super complicated, and the only way that I could try to figure things out for myself was to actually go to the other side and ask questions myself instead of trusting what I was able to find on YouTube or trusting the things I saw on on mainstream media or Comedy Central. Like, I knew that I needed to go myself to really get some of these answers and and make an educated decision on on how to move forward. The ultimate goal was to really, you know, get to the bottom of this, was really to try to ask people in the flesh about their opinions on Black Lives Matter or this protest movement or the the left's opinions on police brutality or, or politics in general. So, you know, in that journey... In order to find that truth, I needed to present myself a certain way, and I was okay with that, knowing that my reasons for doing it were pure and just, and the way that I would present it at the end was pure and just. I'm not giving up anytime soon, whether my project um, comes to a close in the near future or it's already done. Like I, I really feel passionate about continuing to do what I've been doing. Well, 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 Stephen. I love how yeah. how the conversation around journalism continues to evolve yep. in ways that are strange and wonderful and make me uncomfortable. Yeah, it's uh, it's like that magnet, you know. Do one thing every day that scares you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's what you did today, Brandon. Yeah. It's like the puberty of journalism. Everything is growing, and oh, uh, weird yeah. things are happening to the body of journalism. It's yeah, oh, growing God. hair in places that it didn't yeah. used to. You be. You know what? It's it's like that story where you felt lost, and you know you were looking at footprints in the sand. Mm-hmm. And when you needed me most, you didn't see my footprints, and that's because Brandon, I, I went into the ocean. I was like, out. I mean, screw this guy. Yeah, that makes yeah. About, that makes more sense. <laughs> and then I really, I said, where's Stephen? He bailed on me again. Uh, he saw a shiny object out in the water. Oh. Uh, uh, all right. Steve, well, I, I love meeting your friends, and I'm, I'm glad you brought Ron on. And as always, I'm super glad to talk to you. Yep. And I look forward to doing it again soon. I'm Brandon R. Reynolds. I'm Steven Jackson. This is Journos. Journos. See you next time. Bye. Journos is produced by Heather Eagle Ear 